Uh, but in regards to thinking about order in the church, um, I think we've all probably seen uh, this cliche image, like in movies or TV, that kind of things, uh, where we, you're, you're in a courthouse, in a courtroom, like maybe Law and Order or Blue Bloods or whatever you're watching, and there's all this chaos, there's people arguing up front, and the people in the crowds are arguing, and everyone's going nuts, and what does the judge do? He gets his gavel and he slams, and what does he always say? Order in the court, right? Uh, it doesn't actually happen. I've, I used to work at a courthouse. I, I've seen them slam the gavel. They, they don't yell, order. They just, the deputies kind of just shut everyone down. But they don't yell that loud. It's not as dramatic as Hollywood makes it be. But, it is, but they do slam their gavel and expect order, right? Because it shows that disorder is a bad reflection on the judge, right? Well, he must be a really bad judge. or He can't, can't control his courtroom very well, apparently. Maybe he has bad authority. And it makes... Um, Makes them look weak. It makes the people show they have a lack of restraint, right? Like these people can't even be quiet and listen to a, a court hearing, right? So though he's not directly causing anything, it makes him look bad. Uh, likewise, the church in Corinth is having the same problem, right? They, they've gone nuts. If you just, just think of chapter 1 all the way through here, they've just, I mean, Paul's just addressing problem after problem. I mean, they are just in court going crazy, right? And this is kind of Paul's final, it's time for order. It's he's slamming the gavel, and so to speak, right? They have lack of restraint. So Paul's final charge here is a call for order in the church, right? A biblical church is cut from the very pages of Scripture, and which is difficult because all of us, including me, are prone to wander to preferences or traditions or uncertainties or just what I ought to do, and we need instruction. And something I'm thankful for is that God has not left any of us without instruction, right? There's no... No role in the world, no realm in, in life. If you're a human being, you know what you're supposed to do overall. The Bible's very clear, right? Whether as an employee or a boss or a husband or a wife or a child or grandchildren or grandparents or students or athletes or whatever, God really does show you it's very clear what to do. It's actually very easy. I'm really glad because he's not just saying, all right, figure it out, right? He, he gives you boundaries and says, run all you want. Just run in here. It's safe in here. Just run in here, right? That's what God does. And same with being a church. I'm really glad God doesn't just say, all right, figure it out. Good luck. That'd just be chaos. It would just be, we would need order in the court, so to speak, right? So here, this is just another instance where Paul says, we have order. He wants order for us. And the Lord speaks through Paul and gives us, as a church, we submit collectively together to Christ and to his word, right? And I'm thankful again that the Bible is so clear and so helpful in these ways. So what is, why is order good? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why order is helpful and how, how to do it in a church and why it's, why it's right. And point number one, order reflects God's nature. Look at verses 26, the first chunk here through 33, and then we'll kind of move a little slow. But the first chunk is very helpful to kind of set the stage for where we're going. So first, we, 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 we come together rightly, right? So just look at verse 26. Paul says, brothers, when you come together. So by definition, a church is the people who come what? Well, together right? Obviously, they come together. They actually come together. To be a church, you have to actually meet together collectively in a, in a group, right? In some kind of corporate setting, right? The, the church, literally, the word means together, a congregation, right? So Paul says, brothers, when you come together, and if you remember chapter 12, as I've referred to a lot this last, last few weeks, is that Paul is saying God has appointed the body of Christ like members of your own body, right? Each part is different and does different purposes, but they all serve the purpose of the body, right? There's no gathering like the local church. We are unique in the history of the world, aren't we? And the Corinthians, though they were gathering together in body, their hearts were scared. They would come and just do 
whatever they want. Well, I'm going to speak here. I'll do this. I'll do this. And they're just, they're going crazy, right? They're doing whatever they want. And Paul desires to rearrange them in chapters 11 through 14 about how you gather rightly. Like verse 26, each has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Now, Paul's not saying that every person in Corinth has to have one of those. He's saying many of you have these things. And the assumption here is that they're doing what? They're just all kind of doing their own thing. They're, they're all having their, their own little solos, right? Uh, my favorite solo I like to sing is solo, you can't hear me. Well, they're not doing that, right? They're just being, they're doing whatever they want. My wife never th- thinks that joke is funny. I think it's funny, but she always takes her head. I think it's great. But Paul is saying you can't just be, walk in and do whatever you want willy-nilly. There needs to be order. You can't just be chaotic, right? If God gave us gifts orderly, then we must be ordered how we use them, right? And look again in verse 26. This is Paul's repeated theme, right? Let all things be done for building up. I mean, this is stated in verse 5, in verse 12, in verse 19. It's assumed all, I mean, this chapter is all about for building up, for what's good for the body, for building. This is the rhythm, right? This is what you gather for. So what about tongues and prophecy? Paul, you've been spending all this time talking about tongues, which is a gift, right? A gift where you speak a language you don't actually know, but you're given the ability, right? According to the Bible here. And prophecy is speaking God's word in a way that fits the setting is kind of how we understood that, right? Well, what about those, Paul? How would do those orderly? Look at verse 27 20. Paul gives us very simple instructions for the church in Corinth. Two or three, each in turn, so needs to interpret, right? If there's no interpretation, what does Paul say you should do? Just keep quiet, right? You don't, you don't need to speak German. If, if we don't understand it, just, just be quiet. It's okay, right? So Paul is saying you should give intelligible, understandable instruction, right? As, as, as we talked about in the past. So the question is, how can any of the Corinthians build up anybody if we're all just speaking a language with no interpreter? That's Paul's thrust here, right? Gather for building up, not for expressing you, right? It's not really about you. It's about the gathering coming together, right? And Paul says you do that by each in turn, right? If no interpretation, then just be quiet. You don't need to do it. Just sit and don't worry about it, right? So therefore, the default setting in worship as individuals, as you come individually, the default setting is actually looking outward, not inward, right? So when I come, I'm actually looking to my brother, not to me. I don't, if, if, if I can't do this rightly, Paul is saying, if you can't speak in tongue rightly, then be quiet and do it for everybody else, right? So the, the mind we should have when we come together is not, not, not just check it off a list, but how can I speed up my brother? How can I help him? How can I grow him? That's what Paul is getting at here. Same with prophecy. Look at verses 29 through 32. Paul says ultimately the same thing. Let others weigh in, right? Be silent. Let one do at a time. In verse 31, why is that? So that all may learn and be encouraged. Do you catch the rhythm? Again, it's very clear what Paul is saying, right? The body of Christ looks continually to the other, to the weaker, ultimately towards my brother. I think in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus is risen from the dead, and he confronts Paul, right? He just blows Paul up off his horse, and Saul just flies off, right? Who are you, Lord? And he says, why are you persecuting me, right? And Saul's like, what are you talking about? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the church. Oh. So the church is the body of Christ. What a perfect illustration. That's what Paul is getting this from, right? And we, like a body, join together and uphold each other. We pray for one another. We encourage each other. We serve one another. And a body is such a perfect illustration. If you ever ever cut your finger next time, 
uh, which I don't recommend you go home and do, but if it happens later today, uh, do you ever think about how amazing your body is? It's simply stunning. When you cut your finger, lightning fast, faster than lightning, literally, a message is sent to your, from your brain, uh-oh, got to cut, got to fix it. I mean, it's instant, right? And you have little cells in your body called platelets, and they form a clot to stop the bleeding, right? That's, they literally, that's what a scab is, it's cells, right, forming up. Well, what if some of your platelets said, you, so you cut your finger, your brain says, go. And what if some platelets said, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm not feeling very plate-like. I feel more liver-like today. What would happen? Bleed out, right? Well, it's not really about what you want. Do what the head says, right? That's what, that's what Paul is getting. Rather than helping the body, just floating around, just being neglectful, that doesn't help anybody. So, brothers, let me encourage you, as you come each Lord's Day, to awake to a reality that maybe not thought of, that everybody in this room, maybe even yourself, but certainly those around you, are in one of two categories as a Christian. You're either growing to love Christ more, or you are declining. There's not a middle option, right? There's not neutral. It's either you're loving Christ more and you're growing, or you're sliding. And they're often both hard to distinguish because they're not ramping up or ramping down, but... Everyone around you is in one of those categories. Our spiritual needs are more precious than our physical needs. And like Adam in the garden, when we sin, we are prone to hide our spiritual condition behind fig leaves, right? Well, I don't want to know I'm sinful. So I'm fine. I got no problems. I'm fine, right? But the good news is that coming to church, I think, at least for me, automatically reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So let me ask you a question. This would be very easily answerable. When do you outgrow your sinful condition? When you die, right? When do you stop repenting as a believer? When you die. So therefore, seek to encourage those around you. Pray for them. Gather intentionally, knowing that, man, my brother might be wrestling today. Check on him. Well, more on that later today, but consider those things that everyone around you is in one of those two categories. Secondly, and briefly, before we go to the next point, Paul says coming together reflects something. So first coming together rightly and then coming together reflects something. So what is, what is Paul saying? What should a church reflect? Well, oftentimes styles and cultures will be prevalent in a church, which is good. Like we're not wearing Scottish kilts here because we're not in Scotland. That's okay, right? If we did, if we're in Scotland, we're a kilt. Right? That's not wrong for a church to reflect a culture in that way. A church should be representing what is around her in that sense, right? But the church exists primarily to reflect, not us, but the character and nature of God, doesn't it? This is done not by blurring things as if we don't have any differences, because we do have differences. But it's in gathering under one united thing. So we don't pretend like we're not different, because we are. That's okay, right? Your finger is different than your nose, Praise God that it is. But we gather knowing that we have the same, under the same banner. We look to the same head who is Christ, right? Uh, this, I think it was Thursday or Wednesday I was driving. Uh, and I just finished raining. Just saw just a perfect rainbow. I mean, just you just stop and just, man, I'm driving. I should probably not look this much. This is just beautiful. It's right in front of me so I can drive towards it. But just stunning, right? And, of course, we know that a uh, beam of light you don't see the beam, right? But you know in a color, there's colors. Well, the, the way to remember it is Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. That's physics class for you. 
That's the colors of the rainbow, right, in the right order. We know that we, we see one beam, but there's many colors, but they're gathered together. So there's one bow, one sunbeam. Right? Look at what verse 33 says. This is Paul's reasoning why order is important. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So confusion, think of speaking different languages, all these tongues, all these confusing prophecies. They're all signs of confusion, right? And Paul is saying order matters because how you gather in a church tells the world something about God. So each time we gather, no matter how we gather, every church in the world that gathers is reflecting God. The Corinthians were doing it very, very poorly, right? Just like every marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, Ephesians 5, so too every gathering is a reflection of God's character, the body of Christ. So our question then is not do we reflect God or do we tell the world something about God? Rather, the question is, are we reflecting God rightly? Are we telling right things about God to each other and to the world? Because we all are constantly, right? What are we known for? What is this gathering most known for? May it be for exalting Christ. That's the pinnacle right there, right? The way we gather, sing, preach, teach, all these things communicate what we think about God. And God himself attends to our gathering, so then we should worship in such a way that would reflect him. So God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of chaos. So order is good, right? We, there's, we see order in creation, right? Order in salvation, order even in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So all things that happen, that change, that remain, that develop in a church, whatever they are, should be orderly and should be according to Scripture, right? It's not just what, what I feel like doing. It's not what you feel like doing. It's, is it biblical? That's, that's, that's our, our rule of thumb here, right? I mean, consider everything that we just read this morning, that man is made in whose image? Well, God. So we, we literally reflect God by just being a person, right? The heavens declare the glory of who? God. So creation just shouts. Cre- there's a creator. Shouts God's glory, right? Every day as a Christian, you're being more conforming to the image of Christ, right? And the church is designed to reflect Jesus. Do you see the pattern? Everything that exists is to reflect God, including the church. Now the controversial part. Secondly, order remembers God's design. Look at verses 33 and thir- through 35. So first, roles are biblical. As I said, perhaps one of the most controversial verses probably in the Bible is this section, if not chapter 11, is also kind of the same um, blend of controversy, but we love the Bible. Look at verses 33 and 34. So the end of 33, Paul says, As in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So Paul gives this command for how many churches? The first few, most of them, the ones he knows. Just all of them, right? This is very clear. God's given the church body spiritual leadership roles, right? We, we don't have to figure it out. He's just very clear here. He says women should keep silent in the church. It refers specifically, if you just read the context, what we just covered, it's referring to what happens on the Lord's Day, Sunday, today, right? This is what it's supposed to reflect, right? There's a right way to gather here, is what Paul is saying. Speaking in tongues, prophesying, teaching, Preaching, that, that, that's, the, that's the idea here, right? So Paul, again, said this is the rule in all the churches. If you look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17, 
chapter 11, verse 16, he says, this is the rule in all the churches. This is the rule. I mean, Paul just making it clear, this book is not just for Corinth. It's for all of us that gather here. Second, Paul says that women should not, therefore, be called to the office of a pastor in the local church. So God's not arranged the church to function that way. It's very simple. Why? Well, because we're the body. He's the head. He, he's, we're the brain. He is the brain, right? We, we, we do what the body says, right? But the head says. And look what Paul appeals to. Look at verse 34. What's he appeal to? The law, right? As the law, as the scripture, as the Bible, as the Old Testament also says. Now, Paul doesn't give specific. Paul doesn't say, well, if you look at the book of Isaiah, he's not doing it. He just says the law. So what does that mean? Well, I think it just means anything in the Old Testament. He does cite Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 11, as he did regarding um, Adam and Eve. Adam being created first, woman coming from Adam, right? He does cite that in the last chapter regarding roles of men and women. But in the Old Testament, just, just to be very, very clear and very helpful for you, in the Old Testament, there are no female high priests. There are no authorized queens from God. God did not send ongoing prophetic ministries of women like he did to Elijah and Elisha. The books of the Old Testament are not authored by women, but by, by, by men. God does speak and use women in the Old Testament, but they are not the spiritual leaders of God's involvement in the world with Israel. Likewise, in the New Testament, we have a similar idea. There are no female apostles, pastors, or elders. The books of the New Testament are not written by women. They're written by men. All the sermons in the Bible recorded are recorded by men. Just very clear. Lastly, the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are for men. Just very clear. It's just cut and dry. This is God's good design. So don't recoil. What we do is we recoil. Oh, I can't do something. No, no, no. Don't recoil, right? Press in, right? This is God's good, kind design in the world that men should lead and shepherd not only their families, and spiritually lead their family, but also lead the church of the living God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's even more clear. Paul tells Timothy, hey, you're starting this new church. You're, you're the pastor. This, Paul just says the same rule. He just says women should not teach over. He just, it's very clear. Paul just lays it out. He's just giving us a gift. It's very clear. Right? He, says, he cites Genesis chapter 2 again. So God designed the church, his church, right, for our good. So women, let me encourage you to heed the charge. And men, we need to lead the charge. Do you see the difference? There's a lot of liberal denominations that are quicker to believe that Jesus rose from the dead than to believe a text like this. It's very, very peculiar. I'll just give you a for instance, and this is just a, this is friendly fire, but it is what it is. Uh, in, the, in the SBC, in our domination, we have churches that reject this rule. Rick Warren's church rejects this flat out. They don't care. They acknowledge it. We do it. They're under some talk right now about what's going to happen next. Uh, someone like Beth Moore, who was once in the SBC, said she helped do it, but then she just left a while ago, and now she's functioning as a woman pastor in an Anglican church. So let me encourage you, press into the hard things. Don't squirm from them. Roles remind me who is supreme. It's not me, Right? And roles give us actually freedom to run faithfully, right? I like caveman talk. Kale, here's your role, run. Okay, simple. Have role, will, run. That's just, you know what to do. Be husband, will, lead. Okay, just very simple. That's what Paul's doing here. They give us freedom to run. In the, instead, the church then is to be led by 
godly, qualified men who reflect the nature of God, who love the Bible, who lead with courage so that godly women are protected. That's the goal. I want to protect godly women, not put them up front and let them get shot first. We want to lead. That's the, role, that's the idea here. God gives us good boundaries so we can run faithfully. Second look at verse 35. Roles are not only for us and biblical, but roles are also very fitting. Look at verse 35. <coughs> she seemed to get a hint about what seems to be happening in Corinth. Look at verse 35. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Again, he's speaking primarily here of this idea of prophecy, of, of leading. What seems to be happening in Corinth is perhaps there's tongues and prophecy. Maybe there's women just questioning or saying, be, just shush, be quiet, or just causing chaos. And Paul's saying, just stop, knock it off. So he's quieting the conflict by doing this, right? Maybe it's tongues. We don't know what's happening exactly, but it's probably something along that lines. If you look at the context here. Either way, the Corinthians were again out of order, right? The, the courtroom is going insane right now. It just, it's going nuts. It's a cage match on pay-per-view. It's going crazy right now. And in our fallen nature, we are more prone to lean towards certain things as men and women. Let me give you some examples. Um, as a man, as men, I am more prone to be typically one of two things in my sinfulness. And maybe you men can relate, and I hope that you can. I'm either very passive, eh, won't do it, won't address it, won't worry about it, just sit back. Or I'm too aggressive. I'm harsh, firm, right? Either I discipline my kids rightly, or I'm firm, I'm too hard, I'm just kind of like, ah, don't feel like doing it right now. Well, that's bad. It's passive. That's not right. Women are more prone to what the Bible says as quarreling, being unruly. That's the same idea here is upsetting, right? Going up against, pushing against, right? The apostle makes the Corinthians aware that their roles in the church and authority must be in submission to what the scripture says. So brothers, we have no higher calling than for all of us together to submit our lives to what the Bible says. We are all charged. But let me give you perhaps a thorny implication of this that I hope you will be thorned by in a good way. Look at verse 35. If the assumption then is to ask your husbands at home, men, what is the assumption that you should be able to do? You should know your Bible pretty well. Right? Apparently. So husbands, men, are you competent in the scriptures? Are you leading your wife in godliness? Ephesians 5 says, washing her with the word. In marriage counseling and just talking about marriage, Ephesians 5 just very clear that husbands are responsible for their spiritual growth of their wife. That doesn't mean that they read the Bible for them. It doesn't mean that. But it does matter that we know what they're doing and we encourage them, we help them, we love them, we encourage them. Honey, are you reading? Can I pray for you? What's going on? What are you reading? Tell me about it. I would love to know. Oh, I don't think that's right. I'm not sure. Like that, that's a regular Christian marriage, right? The majority of studies show that more women go to church than men. So men, what say us? What's going on? And we're passive. Do you know your wife's spiritual condition? Better, could she go to you and get good biblical instruction? Failure, failures in godly men 
to be properly trained often lead to women stepping in and saying, well, then we'll take the role. And sadly, that's often what happens. When we fail to lead women say, well, someone's got to do it. If you don't, if you don't do the laundry, then I'm going to do it. Right? That's what happens. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Someone's going to do it, right? Well, if we fail to lead, women will step in. And brothers, I don't want women to be ushered to things that they ought not be doing because I'm lazy. It is fitting that we are competent, that we're able to instruct our wives, to lovingly correct her, to lead our family spiritually, but simply to take the initiative, to step up to the plate and bat first. The reality, however, is that all of us, both men and women, have not followed our roles in the world. God's our creator. He's the ruler. He gives the law. He's the law giver for all humanity, right? God is good. His laws reflect his nature, so his laws are good. They promote flourishing. He's infinitely good, righteous, and holy in all that he does, and God's created us to image after him, right? But because of sin, we have marred and distorted our roles, haven't we? Both men and women, and just in being people, right? Not even doing it, just by being a person, we've distorted our roles as image bears, right? First John 3 says that sin is lawlessness. It's just rejecting the law. It's saying God's law says this. Ah, no, that's sin. Our sinful nature rebels and suppresses God's law. So why did Jesus come? For lawless ones. For lawless men and women like you and like me. Jesus always it was pleasing. He always obeyed God. He always loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, and all of his mind. And he glorified God by obeying in that way. So that on the cross, Jesus would be counted as a lawless husband. As a lawless man, as a lawless wife, as a lawless woman. And he suffered the debt that they owe. My sin credited to him. His righteousness credited to me. Finally, right? All of it. Perfect life. Perfect death. Reconcile him to us. Us to him. And now, as the body of Christ, God is actually restoring within us the fullness of humanity. So picture this. God doesn't just say, you're a Christian, go to church. I'm done. See you later. No, no, no. He's actively renewing the image of God that we've marred. Isn't that good? He's not just done with you. You're saved and all right, just I'll see you tomorrow. He's actively working in the heart of the believer to make you more like a person in the image of God. And who was the perfect image of God? The incarnate son, Jesus Christ, right? That's the point. Every day we're being conformed to the image of Christ together as a church, as men and women, right? So men look to Christ, see his courage, his holiness, he serves by going low. By lead. He serves by leading, right? Leads by serving. He died to himself for the good of others. Do that for your family. Christ is your model. So fight the sin of apathy. I hate it. Oh, it's just ugly, right? Nothing gets done because I don't feel like it. It's ugly. Fight it. Women, look to Christ. Seek his meekness, his humility, his obedience unto death. Christ is your model. Fight the shame, Paul says, of living contrary to these things. It's beautiful, beautiful in God's sight. First Peter says, fight together. Lastly, number three, order responds to God's word. Look at verse 36 through 40 here. This is, this is Paul's kind of last thrust here. Then I got a few things application and then we'll be out. First, Paul commands us to obey. Very simple. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? 
or are you the only ones it has reached? Paul reminds the Corinthians that biblical instruction did not originate with them, right? This isn't the first time he's talking about the Word of God, so Paul is saying, so you don't have the ability to just reject it. Instead, Paul reminds them that all the churches are in the same camp. Church in Philippi, Ephesus, whatever Paul is saying, this is leveling. This is for all the churches. It's not just going to you, it's going to everybody else. So true churches, then, are churches of one book, right? We have Ephesians 4 says we are people of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? We're, we're united in Christ, right? Despite denomination differences, we are united in Christ. So we look maybe different on the outside with some different shades, right? As we read the word, even the difficult parts, remember, brothers, that people before you have read the exact same passage for thousands of years and have come, yeah, let's, let's, let's submit to the Lord. Let's trust the Lord here. Let's, let's do that together. An encouragement, then, is to read godly books by godly men and women who came before us. If you want a good place to start, on the website, I have a little list of books that Kelly has recommended and books I've recommended. Uh, that'd be a good place to start if you want to know some good books to read. But I take heart that a church, and so a lot of Christians always say, man, I wish we were uh, close to the apostles, right? The church, and, uh, I wish we were like the churches back then. I'm so thankful that a church this close to Jesus was this jacked up. Uh, good news. Like, well, then we'll be fine, right? We're 2,000 years removed, and they, I mean, they were within 30 years, and they just butchered it, right? And we're far away. We should be encouraged. We can, we can be faithful. They struggled. We can be faithful just like they can. When we struggle, they struggle too. So there's hope for us. There's hope for a church. There's nothing new under the sun after all. Like verses 37, 38. Paul rebukes what seems to probably be an issue in Corinth, or he's expecting an objection, or maybe both. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just pick one. Any chapter. Pick a chapter. Preferably one in the middle. What color are your letters there, most likely? They're probably red, right? And we, and now, G, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John didn't have red ink. Like, oh, I got red ink. I'll get a red pen. Right? I didn't do that. We, we added that, right? It's our adding. It's okay. Now, Paul says those who don't recognize his words are not recognized by God. So let me ask you a question. Look at any red-letter verse, and look at this. Whose words have more authority, Jesus or Paul? Red or black? According to Paul here, his words are a command of who? The Lord. Well, who's the Lord? Christ. Right? So to read Paul is to read Jesus. So really the whole Bible should be red letter, if you want to be honest. It should all be red letter, right? Mine's all black to kind of, for that reason, to kind of remind you that's all the same. But it should really all be red letter in that sense that they're all of Christ, right? In John 14, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all the things he spoke to the apostles for the writing of the Scripture, John 14, 26. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, right, in a unique, special way. They will witness to you Christ. Likewise, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gives all the apostles, hey, you can cast out demons, you can heal anything. Why is that? Well, to establish the ministry of Christ and the apostles, right? They actually had that ability given by Christ to establish a ground floor, a foundation of the, of the New Testament, right? When Jesus rose from the dead, he spoke and taught them for 40 days after, after the resurrection. What a Bible study that would be. 40 days of sitting by Christ I don't think I would ever actually go to sleep. You think seminary is all right? I'd take 40 days with the Lord in a heartbeat, right? 
He commissions Paul later in Acts. Represent me, go, right? Just for more reference, Peter says that the, the letters of Paul are Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke as Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Likewise, the book of Jude was likely written by Jude, and Peter used it in 2 Peter to kind of, here's some similarities, let's use these things. He's probably using it as a reference in 2 Peter. We're just looking at the book of Acts. Who is, is the unique position, the authority as the apostle? There's no one like them. They are laying a foundation, right? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. So Paul's charge is to obey Scripture, whether in Genesis or Romans, it's of the Lord, right? It's all God-breathed, so let's be a people who love the book. Lastly, Paul gives us an encouragement to obey. He sends them off well, right? Look at verse 39. To desire to prophesy, it's good. You should do this, right? He's not just ending. He's ending in a, in a sweet way. Go prophesy. Desire, all right? The Word of God does this for believers. It actually encourages, right? When you hear the Word, you don't recoil. Ah, gross, Paul. You should... I want to do that, Paul. How, how, how can I do that? That's what Paul is saying, right? Biblical commands are, they don't smother the flame. They actually are fuel for it, right? So, brothers, be, be a good bodybuilder here. I don't mean go to the gym and take a bunch of creatine. And, I don't mean that. I mean be a good builder of the body. Build people up here. Be in the business of building up. Make that your aim. The entire church should hear the voice of their shepherd here. Don't harden your heart. Nor don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer, right? 1 John 5 says his commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. His rest is plenty, his way is perfect. In verse 40, Paul says, let all things be done decently and in order. That's, that's the thrust here, right? As we come together, we don't come to reflect the culture or the world or what our hearts tell us, but to reflect and submit our feelings to the Bible. Put the word Really, really high as a Christian. Live under it, right? Live under the book. So local church is God's plan for making his name famous, not ours. And think about this little tiny planet called Earth and this huge galaxy of God says, that's the megaphone I'm going to use. That little tiny speck. And the church is then God's unique mouthpiece to speak into the world who Christ is, what he looks like, the glory of Christ. We are God's evangelism plan for the nations. Have you considered that? Shocking, isn't it? The angelic realms, that the nations would hear about Christ through little tiny people like us. Don't think being a Christian is insignificant. Let me give you a couple of short ways here to do that. Number one, growing together. As I stated earlier, everyone in this room is either growing closer to Christ or further, right? Because of this, we need, we need each other, and I, I need you. I do. I, I need you, and you need each other. Um, it snowed. Duh, okay, I'll think so. I'm a good weatherman. I'd be a great weatherman. It snowed outside, just so you know. Uh, when the sun comes out, where does the snow typically not melt so fast at? Well, usually under shade, under a tree, right? Because it's hidden from the rays, so it just stays cool and doesn't thaw, right? It doesn't melt. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we, we do that with our life. We hide things under a shade tree, sin, struggles we have in life, frustrations, failures, difficulties. And we don't take them into the light. We just hide them under a tree, hope they'll fall. And they don't. Let me encourage you to confess your sins to one another. To say, brother, I just need to, I'm having a rough marriage right now. Work stinks. I'm just mad at where I'm at. 
I'm frustrated with this. I'm disappointed. I'm sad. Reveal your sins in the light, and they will melt. They really do melt. They thaw. Colossians 2 says that all of our sins are nailed to the tree, and that Christ was put to shame for them. Meaning there is no shame, hear this, no sin, no shame for a Christian, that the most important, most holy person does not know. And who is that? Who knows the worst things about you? God, Christ, right? So therefore, the most embarrassing, the most shocking, the most shameful, the most frustrating things are unknown. They're actually not hidden. Let that encourage you to confess them to your brothers here. I promise you, you confess your sins to a brother, they're not going to be shocked. <gasps> you sin? You wrestle with that? Why? Because they know, oh, man, what are they probably going to say? And I do too, right? C.S. Lewis says that most friendships start their way by saying this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. That's how confession works oftentimes. Lord, just help me, right? To come together, grow toward one another by coming together, right? So as you drive here, think of somebody, pray for them, ask them how they are. That's it. Hey, can you pray for me as well? On Wednesday nights, I have often had, had you guys pray for me, and it's just a, you guys love me. I hear when you pray. It's a, thank you. It's encouraging to me. Be that way for others. Be slow, slow yourself down to lift them up, right? I want to give you a couple of brief things here on gender stuff, and then uh, I hope this is helpful. So first, masculine Christianity. To be in, in an office as a spiritual elder or like a leader, a pastor, a deacon, those kind of things, men, uh, it is not like getting a job promotion due to tenure, age, or popularity. Likewise, having a Y chromosome doesn't actually automatically qualify us to be leaders in the church, does it? What does James 3 say? How many of you should be teachers? A lot. And James is pretty clear. Not very many, right? He's not warning to not become. He's just saying, be slow, right? Likewise, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 have qualifications that we should meet, right? So I want to encourage you men who lead here and those who lead in the household with a couple words that I I love this topic. Let me just be upfront with you. I love talking about spiritual roles because they are so freeing to me. It gives me, it's like adrenaline. I can do that. Just say it straight. So I hope it's straight. Is our duty and joy to stand on the front lines and lead the charge as men? God's given you and me the courage to, the courage and the role to be the first ones to storm the gate. The Bible says a lot of hard things, doesn't it? You guys ever read the Bible? I hope you do. <laughs> Duh. It says a lot of hard things that the culture hates. Homosexuality, roles, hell, sin. And I believe part of God's calling of men in ministry and leaders of the home is that we should be the first ones to take the bullets for these things. Not my wife. You don't like it? You can tell you. I will preach it. You don't like it. You can talk to me. Don't talk to my wife. Talk to me. That's the idea of being a godly man. I'll take the bullet. And men, we should have a radical flavor of a Christian life. Let's never be passive or lazy. It's not enough to just have our roster and our figureheads be men in the church if we don't actually lead together. So we can't just say, well, we don't have any, any female pastors, so we're acing it. But are we leading? That's the question. Right? Just pictures doesn't mean anything. Are we leading together? 
perhaps in the churches, women would be less seeking the role of pastor if we led better and had more courage. Randy Smith said this, that men are not born masculine. They need to learn it. Specifically, they need to learn by examining the scriptures, looking to the example of Christ, and following other godly men. Masculine Christianity knows the power of the tongue. It doesn't lash his wife with it, but heals and encourages her. It knows the way of confronting sin. This is going to be super awkward, but I have to do it. He's gentle. Masculine Christianity isn't this ridiculous, rugged, I can bench 450 pounds, I can kill a deer with a butcher knife. That's not what it is, right? Though that's pretty cool. Instead, it memorizes scripture, it fights for self-control, and it repents really well. It wants to leave a godly legacy for those behind him. Isn't that attractive? That's what I want. I mean, that's, when I see that, I want that. I hope you do too. It sharpens others around him. Brothers, this kind of Christianity is what our world and our families and our churches, they're just, they die for it. They need it. They need to be that. Lastly, feminine Christianity. Proverbs 31, 30. We'll have Proverbs 31 here. Hope you do. It says that beauty is vain. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. So what then is a truly beautiful woman? 1 Peter 3 says it is a gentle and quiet heart. And God loves that. He does. He says that. Sisters, in a world of yes, God has given you really one no. Don't lead the family or your local church. Now, we're not sinning in that area here. Let me be clear. Our church is not failing that way. I don't believe that we are. But I do believe that men, we need to be more. Take the charge. In the church, our men, if our church was only men, our church would certainly be smellier. But like a bare arm of muscle and bone, it'd just be hard and rough, rugged. The Lord has given us women in our church. Like flesh over an arm, it's tender and soft and warm. Godly women do that for a church. They beautify it. Help us. Help us weak men. Encourage us. Pray for us. Remind us. Don't tear us down. Help us. We are so dumb. Can I just be honest? We are so slow. The way, you, the way women grow in godliness is by being quiet and meek, gentle and gracious. Doing that has more power than being a CEO. Isn't that just great news for you? That's more influential than being a CEO, being a godly woman. You bring warmth to your home, meekness in your marriage, love in your church that bolsters a church. The be of a gentle spirit is a treasury of Christ-likeness. Still waters run what? You know that phrase? Deep. Godly women, dig in that Bible. It's beautiful. Let me, let me encourage you to pray for your church, pray for your pastor, pray for your husbands, pray for those who lead you. And don't think, don't do this, you'll kill us. I wish my husband was more like this. I wish my church was more like that. Don't kill us that way. Don't kill me, please. Pray for me. Encourage your church. Help us. Help us to see. Help us to lead. Encourage us. Point us. Lead. Help us. Give us the word. Nancy Leda Moss said this, the greatest spiritual, moral, and emotional protection a woman will ever experience is found when she is content to stay within her God-appointed sphere. Give me one minute. John Piper has a book. I put it, I'll put it on the uh, church website today. 
Uh, and on the back of it, he has 80 ministry ideas for women. 80 ideas. Do you, is that enough? <laughs> That's quite a bit. 80, okay? Here are a few that are worth noting that we can definitely do here and in our world. Ministering to the handicapped, to sick, hospice, nursing, physicians, those sort of things. Ministry in the realm of music, which you do. To youth, to children, and to other women. Titus chapter 2 is very clear. Pro-life work. Women. What a role. Writing, evangelism, praying, visiting, cooking food, flowers. I mean, on and on and on and on. Missions. I mean, can we just kind of speak more about it? Rehab, new visitors. I mean, on and on. Godly men and godly women are God's means of making Christ known in the world. And he is our king. Let's pray.